I try to not worry about having my own voice or stamp or like my own design on it because when you work with metal, like your own identity comes out in it naturally. So I think it's great to start with their story and where they want to go with it. And then from that, as you work with it, you infuse your creativity. Welcome to the podcast, Tapping Creativity with myself, Matthew C. Temple. And each week we're going to dive into questions and issues and inspiration around creativity and the creative process. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of Tapping Creativity. And this week, uh, we're going to be talking to a artist type that we have never had on the show before. Will Nevins Aldifer is a metalsmith, a jeweler, an artist, and a craftsman who works in Brattleboro, Vermont. And it's kind of cool. He blends this ancient techniques of, it's called Mokamegane, which I hope he'll talk to us about, a lost wax carving and precious metal fabrication. And he blends that with his training also in more modern techniques using, you know, 3D CAD designs, things like that. Anyway, Will is joining us today from Brattleboro, Vermont, an old stomping ground of mine. So uh, thanks for being on the show today, Will. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's my my first podcast, I think, so I'm super excited. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to chat. Perfect. So, uh, Mokume Gane, let's go ahead and just start right there. Awesome, yeah. So, Mokume is one of our favorite techniques we love working with. It is a ancient Japanese technique, kind of developing similar similarly with Damascus steel. Um, and it's, but it uses, unlike steel, it uses non-ferrous metals, so copper, silver, gold, things like that. Um, and basically... You take a number of these layers, you need to clean them really well so they fuse and stick together. And then you clean them really well, stack them up. Once you have them stacked, you put them in these um, steel plates that compress them even further. You stick them in a kiln to heat up. And basically, you're fusing the metals together. So it's not quite a weld, it's not quite a solder. But there's eutectic bonds, so all the little molecules next to the layers are, are jumping over and forming, basically fusing the layers together. So after you put it in the kiln, you can take it out. It's fused together in a billet. Uh, from that billet, then, is basically your like canvas or your raw material. Then your your chunk of metal. So we like to take those bars and twist them, so we get that beautiful twisted wood grain look. And mokume actually translates from Japanese roughly to wood grain metal. Um, so it's kind of it's like namesake or, or what have you. But you can really do really fun things with carving into the metal. And basically, you carve through the layers or twist the layers. And if you carve through them, they're exposing layers underneath. And then when you flatten that out into a sheet of metal or in a bar, you roll it out thinner, that's exposing more layers and showing the pattern. Neat. And then, yeah, for jewelry and rings, then we dip it in acid. If it's copper and silver, we dip in uh, cleric or ferric nitrate. Um, if it's gold and silver, we do nitric acid, and that eats away certain layers. So it kind of reliefs, creates more relief in the pattern. It kind of allows it to pop and get this like three-dimensional wood grain bark thing going on, which is fun. Well, I am going to look into that more. And if any of our uh, listeners are interested in seeing your work specifically, I should have said your company is WR Metal Arts and WRMetalArts.com is your website uh, where you've got rings and other custom jewelry and jewelry they've already made, some pretty amazing stuff. And we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. I always loved making jewelry. I'm going to tell you, I made my first piece of jewelry when I was probably 10 or 11. And there was a jeweler who I would just go and hang out with. And I was like, I wanted to make a, 
uh, a wolf, uh, like a wolf head pendant. And she gave me mm-hmm. a piece of wax and she gave me a, you know, a file and all the stuff that I needed to take home. And I sketched it and it was beautiful. And I, I it, it's a sad ending of the story. It was this beautiful, it was like the most, I, I mean, granted I was a kid, but it was kind of way beyond my years. I'm not that amazing of an artist, but somehow I just nailed it. And then I lost it like two days after I finished it, but I survived. I'm here to tell the tale. Uh, so, but like, I loved making it, but the idea of turning that into a, into a profession where you, now you have a, you know, you've got a studio and you've got employees and all this stuff. Tell me about that kind of process from, this is something I love doing to now this is a career for you. Great question. Uh, I'll try to answer it as best I can. Um, yeah, I guess it started with, um, Thing, um, at Waldorf school in high school and middle school, actually, where, um, we had a blacksmithing class and I just fell in love with fire metal and how they interact and how they work together. Um, and then actually did a senior project with it, but it was very much like, I guess there's, there's always this balance of art and craft, the craft of like learning the technique and really learning the skills. And a lot of that is muscle memory and just doing it over and over again. I remember in Blacksmithing, we did similarly in silversmithing when I was at Earlham College. This is just like take a bent piece of metal and like with a hammer, make it straight. So you just learn all these techniques of how to forge and move the metal. And you're learning the plasticity of metal almost and how how it moves, what to expect, things like that. And then that can translate into when you make jewelry, into when you make uh, hollowware vessels, anything you want to do with metalwork. So it's like taking that craft, learning the muscle memory, learning the skills. But then the art comes in, like, what are you trying to say with this? What are you doing with it? Where are you going in your life? What are you trying to express? And sometimes those are not perfectly balanced. Uh, and I find that's always kind of a fun thing to be gentle with ourselves with of like, okay, I'm feeling more conceptually based right now, or I just need to hammer some stuff and that's all I can do right now. For a long time, I just kind of did it on the side while I had other jobs. And it wasn't until we moved to Vermont when I did it full time. So that whole time is very much me kind of always balancing those two things within metalwork. When we launched Metal Arts um, full time, and it, like it was just me, and then um, my co-parent Rosie joined as well, um, and then we started hiring employees. That first transition, it was like um, very much. It wasn't just about metalwork anymore. It was that, that art and craft applied to something less tangible and like applied to creating the business itself. Um, so it took me a number of years to realize that, that that's what was also going on. So I think that's reflecting on it now. It's helpful to know that like <clears throat> part of that was uh, building the muscle memory of like how do I how do I keep bookkeeping records? How do I um, manage inventory how do i keep producing new pieces and talk to clients and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of fun fusing those things in the business as a creative endeavor and um parallel with metalwork i guess right uh, yeah um you know you, you mentioned something that i think uh, is so common for artists or creatives is that you did it sort of on your free time while you had other jobs and at some point mm-hmm. you were like, you were actually able to make that jump. That's probably a pretty, I mean, for some of us, it's a scary jump. For some of us, it just slips right in. And I guess sometimes it can be a sort of a combination. How was that transition for you? Yeah. Um, it definitely took a long time for me. It, um, it was a big jump. I think imposter syndrome is something I've always kind of danced with, let's say. Um, 
So after college, I mean, that was true when I was at Earlham College. Um, I didn't feel like I could just be an art major because that wasn't um, responsible enough. I had a double major in HDSR, a human development and social relations kind of interdisciplinary major. So I could always fall back on that if I needed to. So there wasn't this like trust or faith in myself yet or confidence with my work. And then that kind of continued while having jobs. That metal work was always a part of my work or something I loved to do. And I wasn't going to let that go. But I wanted another income to supplement that. And I think that was very appropriate early on because I could learn more about my style. I could keep growing, learn from others. There, was, there wasn't the pressure of like having to sell, having to make a certain amount of money. So that was really helpful, I think, in the kind of development. And then it wasn't actually until Rosie finished law school and we were actually staying with my parents rent free. And she was studying for the bar that I was like, I don't need a job right now to pay rent for a couple months. Let's try to do this full time. So I did. And we actually... I finished all the jobs, all the orders I had, and ended the summer with more orders, like more new orders. And I was like, all right, I don't have time to get a job. Let me let me try this. Um, and that's what was super exciting. So it went from working in our living rooms on the weekends to working in the basement every day. And then it just started to grow. And every year we've like seen growth, uh, which is just such an honor. And yeah, I just feel really lucky and privileged that we've been able to kind of just keep growing it from there. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's something that so often is vital. And to be able to sort of recognize when you have this or find some way to get it, where can I live rent free for a little while (laughs) in order to get this going? Because as an artist or as a creative, as a craftsperson, to make that jump, it's either you're working for somebody else right? And you kind of go through it that way. You're an employee, you could have gotten a job at some fabricator, or you could have gotten a job for, you know, maybe some other jeweler or whatever. To make that jump, it's almost as though it actually requires this little, this little gift <laughs> that mm-hmm. it makes such the difference. But then the other piece of that is that you actually showed up and you did it on the weekends leading up to that point. It yeah. wasn't just an idea. One thing I'm very grateful of is like my support network that I also was building, just of friends who wanted to support me, Rosie, my, my current co-partner, co-parent. And like that was great because, I mean, she had a, a job that also paid benefits that helped cover that as well. And then also, I think just having space and time to talk to other creatives was amazing. And kind of, I've always liked connecting with other folks. And I find I also get a lot of energy from talking to other creatives who may not be exactly in my field. So at the time I was working at a bronze foundry, doing bronze casting and public art and things like that. So it was fun talking to all the artists that would come in that we were doing the wax work for. They would bring us sculptures. We would basically translate that to bronze for them. And it was just so exciting to talk to them about like getting into galleries, getting into shows and that whole process. And there was also, I guess, a lot of workshops, a lot of podcasts, a lot of just like self-taught. Like how do I learn all this information? How do I build the tools so I have you know a toolbox ready to go for for my own business or for my own endeavors. Right. That's so fast. An artist brings a, a sculpture and you translate it. Does that mean you cast it first? Like you take their sculpture and you cast around it and let's not spend a lot of time on it. I'm just so fascinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or well, do you actually just yeah. like recreate it in wax or how does that? So an artist would bring us a sculpt. So we, I worked in a bronze foundry in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and then Boston. And then also, I guess, uh, a good friend then bought the equipment from that foundry in Boston and started his own, which is amazing. He's doing awesome. Sincere Metalworks in Amesbury. He's, Dan is amazing and Caroline. But basically, so an artist will bring them a clay sculpture. They basically make a plaster and rubber mold around that clay sculpture. So if you like, someone brought you a hand, you build a, a mold around it 
And then you would, um, once that's cured and it's ready to open up, you open it up and you have all these pieces that you can then pull the clay out of, put the mold back together, and you have a perfect vacuum of what that, where that was. Pour in wax, take it apart again, then you have a wax copy of whatever the sculpture is. And then that you can dip in a high heat ceramic material, melt out the wax, pour in the metal, then you have a bronze sculpture. Awesome. Okay. That, that's in my future. Um, for sure. So it's cool. A very long process, but it's so cool to take anything. Like we were doing, uh, I don't have any good examples here, but like rotten apples, rotten pears. Yeah. We were doing molds of our face, things like it was just fun kind of being, it was, uh, we had a lot of interns from art, mass art. So I got to work with a lot of mass art folks and it was just like fun to explore and play with like, how far can we push the medium or like, you know, what can we do with this? Right. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> and it's fire, you know, fire, molten metal. It's fun. That's super cool. I love that. And a lot of times, you know, in my, both my work, when I'm teaching, uh, if I'm coaching, if I'm just in, in the world that I live in, there are so many intangibles. Writing is, you know, writing, making music. Yeah, it, it's a thing, but you can't necessarily just get up in the morning and like grab a hunk of film and 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 do something with a hammer <laughs> with your hands. So there's this ephemeral nature sometimes, but like metalsmithing, there's nothing terribly ephemeral about metal and obviously as an artist you have to take your concept but you also have if you're not just hammering away or doing something you're actually not getting any closer right yeah it's a good question or thought um and i think well the cool thing for metal has always been for me that like it's so um it can be so conceptual but it's also so tactile like you said and it's so like like we make tools for metal. We make like it's so util like utilitarian as well. Um, and often these metal things transcend us. Or like they go, they live longer than us often. Um, so it's like the things we're putting out there. I mean, I guess the like concepts and ideas and, and stories, you know, do that as well through film or whatnot. But like this public piece, public sculpture is going to be there in the city for hundreds of years. And I think with jewelry as well, that's really cool because you're creating these heirlooms for people. You know, it's like, it represents their love and their story, but they might pass it down if they decide to have kids um, and choose to do that. Um, so it's just kind of cool having that element with it. And I think that was a big um, transition that I had to do a lot of work with as, the, as our small business grew a little bit. So now we have like five employees. Um, and just an awesome team right now. But um, for me, not doing all the metal work on every piece, we now have two awesome metal smiths that I went to school with, um, Vanessa and Martin, they're amazing. But with them doing more of the metal work, it was like, okay, what, how am I contributing? How am I still having this like touch point with the piece to kind of still feel it and still have that connection? And what I realized is it came back to, it leaned more on the, um, the art side of the brain, I guess that I talked about earlier where it's like, it was really about the design and talking to people about like, okay, what do they want to incorporate into that story? What do they want to have this ring represent? You know, does it, is it a memorial piece? Is it a partnership band? Is it to represent multiple partners? Is it uh, birthstones, you know, things like that. And that's what was really exciting. And then basically translating those ideas to design and then having translating that to like a finished piece where more of my, I realized I was like guilty for giving up more of the metal smithing, but then realized this is almost feels more creative to me. The metalwork has always been like a self care 
like hammering while I'm listening to podcasts or how's the brain's working. And that was very fulfilling, but like as an art form, it's almost like I'm more excited about the design. And my first question was actually about that. We generally think of that as a craft, right? You're as a craft person, but yet at the same time, you're also an artist. So those things have to, you know, work in tandem and figuring out that balance, I think is really important. And I think in basically in every art form, the craft is vital. Your creativity is hampered by the, basically the level of your craft. Right. The metalwork, especially there's so many different areas you could take it. Um, like, Metalworking, you have platinum smithing and, and diamond setting, like a lot of stuff we do. On the other side of the spectrum, it's like if you go to the hardware store and get a screw, that screw is still made from metal and someone has to make that, or at least man the machine that's making it. So it's like there's such a huge amount of different facets of the metal industry, um, jewelry being one of them, and then within that you have subsections as well. But So yeah, something that I guess I was confronted with, and didn't quite realize it at first, but it's like, how do I want to spend my time? Do I want to be at the bench 24 seven and I work for someone else and just set stones all day long? Part of me was like, yes, like the craft of that being a master craftsman, that's really exciting. But when I tried that, I realized I was missing something. I kept getting bored or just wanting more personal connection. And I think that connection really drives me. But then the other side of the spectrum, I didn't want to just be a retail shop with like pushing the classic traditional jewelry that was kind of a little bit gross or just like, I don't know, too mainstream. I was like, I feel like that's not authentic or doesn't align with my values to just push like mass market stuff or whatever. Yeah. Mass market stuff. Exactly. So then I feel like with design, that's kind of been the happy medium where it's like, I can draw on, you know, the connection with people that is a little bit there in the retail area. I can draw on the the beautiful history of the craft and learning from other people and and my own history and, and work with it. But also can talk to people and like that's what drives me and what's exciting to kind of pull out what's important to them and then translate that to metal. What does that look like for you when you go from somebody wants a ring or whatever and it's got to mean certain things? And what is that process for you of taking somebody's concept and forming it through your ability as an artist to make a piece of art out of somebody's idea? Kind of the first thing I do naturally that's really important is to like not walking into it with anything and really listening to the person or people coming to us about what they want. And we have like ways of asking questions that we can get the information we need, but really it's about hearing what's important to them. If someone comes to us, let's say a ring project or they're looking for a partnership band, we won't use engagement ring unless they use that word first because language is like so important. We want to hear from them what language they're using around with the project and how do they refer to each other, well, really, what what are these objects symbolizing? Is it partnership? Is it love? Is it a child? Things like that. And then from there, that's just like the first moment. We always want it to be a very emotional process, which it will be, but they're all are so, everyone has a budget, so that's a real thing. Uh, When we made, when I made my red wedding ring, that was a, you know, a thing. I luckily was making it, so I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to afford my own work at the time. So budget's a real thing, time frame's a real thing. Um, So it might be that, you don't need a fully custom ring. You're just excited for a ring and you're excited for a specific stone because that's important to you. So we have those pre-made designs on the website. So that's easy. You know, you can go there. But someone may want something more one of a kind, more like I want it designed specifically for me or for my partner. And that's great. And then we could go the custom route. So it's really kind of cultivating or creating this curated process with someone that really fits them and is a reflection of their identity, their lifestyle, their sometimes it's like what do they want it to symbolize? Um, who do they want to be when they wear that ring? Your past, but also possibly your future. Hmm. 
Neat. And I kind of like that you know, when you just said the language is so important that when you allow that to come in, that's going to in, impact your your thinking as the as the craftsperson and as the artist. I can only imagine that if you start with the language or you try to interpret their story too early, you're putting yourself on it as opposed to pulling them. And that's now I mean, what you already what you have inside of you. It's like, you know that and that's cool. But but when someone else brings something, you now you have to interpret it. Now you have to take their language and you actually have to build this from them. You're going to come up with stuff you never would have come up with if you were just going back yeah. to the same old well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I try to not worry about having my own voice or stamp or like my own design on it. Because when you work with metal, like your own identity comes out in it naturally. So I think it's great to start with someone out like their story where they want to go with it and then from that you can kind of as you work with it you infuse and, and yeah infuse it with kind of your create creativity so one thing i'm kind of curious about is a creative challenge that you've come up against as a as a jeweler slash metal smithing artist and like what your process was within that particular challenge there's always many many challenges and that's kind of i've had to do a lot of work again to be like all right challenges are just teaching moments and things we can learn from yeah, leverage them for success, I guess. I think the biggest challenge is if communication's off, it can be challenging. So it's like, what are the things, you know, what visuals, what are the things we need to bring in to kind of help that process? And the other challenge with metalsmithing and jewelry, I feel like it's just the materials themselves are beautiful and lovely to work with, but they're each very specific. You know, like you can quench some metals, others you want to let cool. Mokume, the first time I was working with it and learning to work with it, I quenched it. And if you quench Mokume, what happens is all those layers you fuse together split apart. So the whole billet just fell apart on me. Um, so things like that, it's like you learn. And yeah. at the moment, it was like, ah! But then, yeah, you get better. And it's, yeah, you, you don't make that mistake again, which is great. Another fun one is like uh, stones. Sometimes stones are very small. I don't have very small fingers. I try to be as dexterous as I can. But sometimes stones do fall on the ground. And in this old mill building, there are cracks in the floor. So sometimes we have lost stones on the ground. And we have a couple of really funny videos of me like on the ground looking for little diamonds or something. Um, so that's always a hoot as well. It's funny because, again, at some, get... because at some point down the road in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, you're going to move out. Somebody's going to come in. The, a, better, a, a bigger chance that someone's going to vacuum it up and it's just going to end up in a landfill. And then there's that little yep. chance that some little kid's crawling around and finds it and keeps it thinking that they just found a cubic zirconia or some like fake little jewel and uh, uh -huh. they're actually sitting on a diamond. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. Fun. <laughs> and I love I mean, it. to that effect, I mean, that kind of ties into sustainability really well that like we do, like we save all of our vacuum scraps, we save all of our, well, we also, like the way we combat that, I guess, is, you know, we have a bench drawer. So every, whenever we're working, all those sweeps and, and stones are dropping into the drawer. So that really helps. Um, but we save all those sweeps and we actually send those back to the refiner so they can burn out all the, all the like polishing compounds, all the wood, the dust, all that, and purify the gold. And we can get that back as credit, um, which is really great. So we're kind of always trying to reduce and reuse everything in the studio. 
Really neat. Really neat. Lastly, we met because we were on a panel of Waldorf alumni. Obviously, I feel like my Waldorf education was a big part of you know how I turned out for better and for worse, I presume. Um, but I'm also curious how your primary and secondary education impacted your career now as a jeweler and metalsmith and also your creative abilities. I went to Waldorf school pre-K through 12, so I call myself a lifer. And that very much informed my I think artistic endeavors and like freedom to really express myself through different media. I would say like it, Waldorf gives you like a wide breadth of information and kind of the skills, not any specific skill to like go do something specific, but it gives you the tools to do whatever you want or to like learn new things. So I feel like, yeah, Waldorf education really helped with that of like allowing me to follow my dreams and um, even I didn't quite know what they were yet. And that's what was really magical. Um, And then at Earlham College, Again, like it was on, um, it was in a book, Colleges That Changed Lives. My um, advisor at Kimberton, like just had it in a, a 12 college list or something. I was like, well, I'll apply. I visited and I don't even know why. It just felt like home when I went. And I'm so glad I did because I met amazing people. Vanessa was actually my TA and she's now one of our metalsmiths. Martin was, I TA'd Martin and he's one of our metalsmiths. So I met so many fabulous people there. But Earlham really more than anything allowed me to like learn from my community and lean on my community as well as like brought in a very critical lens, I think, which is really helpful and is very like, I don't know, nurtured my values, I guess, as a person. And then that is mirrored, I feel like, for me in the business. And for me, business was always like, was more than just a profit machine. It was like, how can the business reflect my values and who I am? Um, and how can they like help support them, I guess. Um, so I think Earlham and Kimberton, I guess, both really were instrumental in helping form those of like environmental impact, um, social and race theory and critical lenses. Um, and just like, how do we kind of keep, keep assessing and reevaluating ourselves so we can keep doing better? Um, and then for the business too, like what are we investing? What are we supporting? That's why we've kind of like shifted a little bit away from recycled and are looking more at positive mining practices now. Because it's like, wait, recycling is great in one small way, but it doesn't actually support small scale mining um, or miners who are, who are out there mining all the time and we're still using these materials. So like, how do we not ignore them and how do we actually support them and look at the whole picture? To me, that's what it is too. Just looking at, taking a step back and looking at the whole picture and being critical um, for ourselves of being like, right, how can I do better? Yeah, I think that's most of it. Uh, no, that's that's beautiful. And I, I, I will I will certainly highlight that because I think what you just said, A, would be great if that was brought into all industry in general, but also particularly mm-hmm. as creatives and other artists in, in, from all media to be able to kind of step back and like, how am I going to question my my impact? How am I questioning my materials? How am I questioning and reassessing and reevaluating? Because if we're not growing... Yeah. You know, then, I mean, an artist who's not developing is ultimately stagnated. And so what you just said is just, it's just really important. So thank you for, for sharing that. I think what you guys are doing is just uh, beautiful WR metal arts. Um, and I'll make sure to, uh, you know, if you want to find that and also if you have any other links, um, 
to share with the audiences. We'll put those down in the show notes. That way everyone knows where to find you, your beautiful work, and um, and maybe also a cool link to Moko Megane. I feel like I've seen it before. I can imagine it. And now I'm going to go look online and make sure that my imagination yeah. is correct. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing these conversations in the future. We'll see y'all again next week. Thank you.